Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Kraus, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer-producer, recording artist, and educator Bruce Becker. Spanning more than three decades as an educator, Bruce has drawn from his more than 30-year association with drumming guru, Freddie Gruber, carrying on the torch of a unique approach in getting the student to understand the natural principles of the physical body's interaction with the drum set. Bruce's reputation has interested a vast array of drummers to seek his teachings. The list includes drummers such as David Garibaldi, Mark Shulman, Daniel Glass, Glenn Sobel, and Clayton Cameron. Also, Bruce just came out with a brand new book that you can find on Hudson Music called The Ultimate Guide to Syncopation. If you want to support what Zach and I have been doing here on the podcast since 2015, you can join our Patreon page for as little as a dollar a month. You can access the bonus material that our former guests have contributed. This includes song breakdowns by Will Kennedy and Ash Sohn, just to name a few. Aaron Apter is on there, talks about load versus capacity with uh, physical aspects of drumming. And as of this recording of April 2023, we have a recent former guest, Kyle May, who talks about the different snare drums he uses in his home recording, and it's it's just amazing. It's almost 20 minutes of him going through this amazing track and his great performance. So, so again, for as little as a dollar a month, you can access all this bonus material. And if Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find that link on our website at workingdrummer.net. have this conversation i thought hey bruce can i can i take a lesson and then we can talk about it so i want to start there uh had a great lesson with you i'm curious to know what you did to prepare for the first time meeting me and what you were going to do and if you have kind of a game plan in place when you meet somebody or have their first lesson Oh, I have a game plan, actually, you know, of of stuff that I would think that would be valuable to most everybody. That being said, I'm super attentive to listening and watching, observing what's going on with different players and seeing how they're housing the stick. But in general, uh, that tension bubble is what we're after. Yes. And, and in most cases, I would say that there's not a huge amount of elasticity in someone's approach. You know, they kind of get an approach and they stay there. And that might not work for a lot of different musical settings. And as you go through the path, you know, I mean, we're long haulers, I would say, right? So I'm yeah. I'm an older dude. I've been playing for, let's see, since uh, 72. So we're talking 51 years as a, you know, student of the drums and then probably gigging fairly regularly from 77 or 78, you know, when, as soon as I got into my first band, we probably worked a few parties, but then I started to go on the road with, uh, with a band and, um, 
you know, do the casual circuit and all that kind of stuff. But but going back to the, the game plan, uh, to devise a way where you can get inside somebody to open up channels that they can flow a little easier and get inside their head of music. You know, each individual has, I'm sure, a pretty clear picture of what they want to do. It's just how do you get there? And I've seen a lot of instructors who talk about, you know, just hold the stick like this, which is absolutely correct. But there's a methodology that I use to break down and to elasticize and stretch out the hand and, and get inside the from the shoulder down, so to speak, as well as the feet and ankles. Those are just as important. A lot of guys lay so much large responsibility on the hands and everybody forgets about the feet. And for me, that's a, it's a totality. You want your whole body to interact nicely with the kit and feel that you are dancing and flowing. So back to the top, in order for me to get there, like I said, I have a very detailed game plan of many different things I can do. And some of those things have been uh, perpetuated by problem solving with other students and um, I might find that that same variable might work for another guy. It often often does because it just all it did, does is is it allows me to get even more detailed on the inside of the hand for the balance, the recognition of the balance of the stick inside the hand, and like I said, fine tuning pressure points. You know, so the stick sits comfortably in the hand, so we don't have to claw it or, or hold on it to super tight. And um, one key ingredient I think that is. Um, um absolutely imperative is the element of choreographing what you do your movement because it is a dance if you're not super aware of as you know we've heard this uh statement in the past it's not the note you play it's the space around the note that makes the note okay well we have a stick in our hand so we can actually add some choreographing to what's going on and bring about a larger frame dance to what's happening and so those components are just things that absolutely I start with. I bring that to the table. And if somebody has a, um, a specific need or want, I'll address it. I will slowly corral them over, though, to what I know they need just based on, you know, 40, been teaching now for about 42 years. So and pretty intensely for about the last 30. Right. So I did teach going back to. The early 80s, uh, one of my early students was Glenn Sobel. So anybody who knows Glenn Sobel's playing, oh, yeah. currently a longtime drummer for the Alice Cooper band, that's one of my early students. Such, such great flow and large movement. It's really a joy to listen to him play, hearing the sound he gets out of the drums and the way he moves. It's, 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 it's amazing. Well, you know, he came to me as a young guy. He was a, recommenda a recommendation from one of my other students who they were good buddies and drum buddies. And uh, I got to say, when Glenn showed up right from the get go, he was a serious kid. Like at 14, mm -hmm. he just had a game face on. <laughs> so, you know, I was just regurgitating what I had done up to that point. So I would have been a about a four year student of Freddie Gruber's. And, you know, like in everything, like what we do as drummers and musicians, we imitate, we assimilate and then we innovate. Mm -hmm. So I was just you know, basically bringing forward what I had done. So, you know, I was just in that space of like, oh, I kind of get this pretty good. I, I saw what, what was benefiting me. I'm sure my verbal skills were nowhere near to what they are now. I know that for sure. 
you know, one of the big great things that I had to my advantage of teaching, I'll say, is I lived over in Europe for a number of years. And when you're working with people and teaching people who are not native English speakers, you have to be very careful about your word choice to try to bring the messaging along. You can't talk fast and be colloquial like we would here and go like, hey, dude, what's going on? And, you know, speak real quick and have all those little Southern California or American dialectical, you know, nonsense words thrown in. You have to speak slow, articulate. And what I would do is I would... um I would create a picture in my head and I would narrate from that. I know exactly what I wanted to share across or get across to those guys. Interesting. So I had a lot of um, European, you know, not just students, but clinics and workshops. I did a bunch of workshops over in Europe. I lived there for five years Mm -hmm. and then I went back. If I look back, I have all my what we call them agendas over in Europe, all your, your calendar books, you know, from all those years. I think going back to 1994. And so I could tell you every gig, every student and everywhere I was, every trip I made, because it's all written down there. That would be my, you know, knowing where what I was doing. And um, I could just say that, like, you know, there were three times a, a year going to Europe from probably from 1997 when I moved back, because I went immediately back and started doing stuff. I had met a lot of great drummers over there. Uh, a couple that I'll give shouts out to would be Renee Kramer's who's a great Dutch drummer, teaches at the um, conservatory in Arnhem, the Netherlands, also in Tilburg. I don't know if he's still currently at those positions. I believe he is. He also had a drum duo for a number of years, Drum Bassadors, if you've heard of those two guys. Yeah, okay. Him and his student, Vim. I don't remember Vim's last name. I can't think of it. But Vim de Vries, I think. Anyway, those guys, you know, fantastic players. But I met Renee at a drum festival. And then uh, I got to know Jojo Mayer very well when I was working in, in Vienna. I taught at a school for about a year in Vienna, Austria. That was patterned after the Musicians Institute. And um, it was started by a guitar teacher from uh, Hollywood, you know, from that school, from GIT. And he'd gone over and started a school. Uh, by the time I came, I think it had already been running five years or something like that. Okay. So Jojo being Swiss... In nationality, he was already a big deal in in Europe. So in '94, he was already a sonar. He was a Paiste guy back then. He was an Ag- Agner Sticks guy. That's like a stick company that was, I think, sure. I think it was Swiss. If it wasn't Swiss, it was Austrian. But whatever country, I'm I believe sorry. it's Swiss. I remember the yeah. logo. Yeah, yeah. And so um, he was already well known in in Europe for uh, doing clinics and and certain things. So he showed up as a resident for. I believe the first time a week and the second time for three days. But I can tell you from the first just handshake and conversation, I think we got each other quite well. He was very impressed. He gave me a quote early on about, you know, what he saw with the level of students when I came in and took over the position as the drum instructor or the head of the drum department. Anyway, meeting those kind of guys kind of put a different slant in my head as to like, you know, thinking now more about the world and not just my backyard here in LA. And um, like I said, I, I, I was watching other guys and picking up things, but also learning to articulate them at the same time and having conversations with those guys and hearing their take on messaging and, you know, breaking things down it was rather, rather a cool place to sit. There's another guy that I met up with too, this was after I lived there. There's a drummer in Milan, Tony Arco, who's a pretty burning player. 
and um, he would set up workshops for me. He got he got wind of me from a few guys. My former student Daniel Glass, who studied with me for a few years, mm-hmm. and um, I think Adam Newsbaum may also have mentioned me and said because this guy was looking like I want to get more information on Freddie Gruber, and it's so vague. Well, Freddie was a vague guy essentially, but um, uh, he he was a guy that brought me to Italy, and again there was another level of interaction I had to uh, be sensitive to when you're speaking to Italian guys. And a lot of guys in in Italy did not speak English. Uh, I would say, if I'm just going back and taking a good guess, I would say about 60% of the guys I taught didn't really speak English. So I'd have to have an interpreter and I'd have to be, you know, visually expressive, good for Italians because they're always talking with their hands. So I do that stuff and be able to mug and, and, and mimic things very well. But I choose my words very clearly and make sure the message was being, uh, sent across from whether it was Tony doing that or I had another guy that I worked with, uh, Giorgio Zanier. Um, no, I can't think of that guy's name up in, um, shit. There was a guy up in Bergamo. I'm, I'm, I can't think of his name. There was another kid out in uh, Torino. Uh, that was Alessandro Manetto. So anyway, the whole point is, is that communication, communication, communication. And yeah. knowing uh, like the larger frame things, other things I would put forward for teaching that are that I find important in terms of having messaging and, and sitting down and thinking about the plan of action is knowing your method books or having concepts inside the method books. Because if you don't bring together a concept and you're just regurgitating like a lick or writing out a thing or just do this sticking pattern or do this calisthenic. Okay. Those are great at the end of what we're trying to get to. But in, in between that, if you don't have a good hand set up and you're holding that stick rigid and you're trying to do a single stroke exercise or a double stroke or a paradiddle flow or whatever, you can play it till you're blue in the face. You're just going to be bumping into a wall. So right. going back to breaking down the how you do what you do, and and I can do my Freddie Gerber. It's not what you do, it's <laughs> how you do what you do, all right? So I heard that, you know, a billion times. I was so on the innermost orbit of Freddie's, I was like so close to the sun, my skin got burned, <laughs> you know? Hey, I want to unpack just a couple quick things. You sure. talk about, um, it sounds like building concepts and building this understanding of that is so that you don't keep a student for the rest of their life. You kind of have uh, a sell by date, you know, it's almost like you have a student that works with you and, and you're like, okay, it's been two and a half, three and a half years. It's time to move on, you know, give them the tools to be able to work. Um, if you want to speak to that, but also I want to ask about the, the, you talk about chore- choreographing your movements mm-hmm. and, Within the uh, framework of a style of music where you are asked to improvise, you're not talking about work this lick out note for note and what the hand pattern is. You're talking about something else. Could you expand upon that when you say choreographing your moves? Well, okay, sure. So if I just break down a simple paradiddle, of course, the the basic move, like just your basic move, you have other little uh, little attributes we could throw in, but we would have a downstroke and upstroke and the double stroke and how you deliver that and how you get that to come back into the hand for the double is very important so that you can push it along. So if you're working with those kind of stickings along with that, I would also uh, throw forward the identity of melody. And while I would say, you know, in order to get more 
of that improv, improv, uh, try that again, my improvisational speakings. Yeah. I want to know a few different words, have a few different pieces of vocabulary so that when I put it together, it comes out more naturally. That's not to say that you don't regurgitate that and practice it over and over and over like you're learning lines. I would probably pretty confidently say a guy like Dave Weckl isn't flying by the seat of his pants. He's got a lot of stuff that's already registered and worked out. That being said, he might on a given night tap into something that was not fully registered in his practice space, so to speak, where it came out and he went, Oh, that's cool. That's what I was looking for. Or that, that wow, that was great. You know, right, but right. The bigger picture is I've said this numerous times and I just said this, uh, I don't remember who I was talking to, but one of my students, I said, look, I learned a paradiddle in 1972. That doesn't mean I stopped practicing the paradiddle. I didn't walk away from it and go, okay, got it. It's it, still yeah. this, sticking and this component that I put in into other elements. And so by, 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 you know, kind of sticking with it and no pun intended, you get a chance to review it and, and maybe something new comes out of it or another way to engage it. I mean, you know, there is a limitation to what you can do, but in the essence of calisthenics and keeping it fresh and available, you still want to work it. But I, I love the way you, you use the paradiddle as an example of choreographing moves because we know the sticking, but that alone isn't what you're addressing. You're addressing upstroke, downstroke, those kinds of things. That's choreographing the move that then is transferable in other ways that you approach the kid. Absolutely in everything you do. And you can start in your center on your practice pad or your snare drum, and then you want to build up the relationship of how those lift and drops are going to co you know. Mm -hmm cohesively flow to the toms or the cymbals because if you don't have that together <laughs> you don't walk to to a gig with a practice pad and go all right man i'm, I'm ready to go so it, in that light i've got a lot of different you know uh, concepts of moving and working through different variables of stickings to try to address the concept of melody and you know the game plan like you said you know giving people concepts absolutely how long they stay is really registered to how far and how deep they want to go. Cause I can go pretty deep. Mm -hmm. I've had guys who stay with me six or seven years. Like I've got okay, a student okay. who actually was with me for definitely over six years. And then at that point he was so accomplished in so many things and he was playing. And it was funny. He also had like that imposter syndrome. So he would get a gig or get called to do something. And I go, how'd it go? And he would say, yeah, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had the good flow. I mean, I, this was good, but this, and I go, dude, that's just part of life. You can't hit everything on 10 yeah. and you're out there to try to actualize 10 all the time. But that comes with experience. You don't just go on one gig and go like, all right, got it all together. It's cool. Now I'm moving along, you know? So anyway, he started with me at a point where, and I've used this analogy, and it's it's not really to be uh, offensive, but he couldn't really rub two drumsticks together, mm -hmm. you know? And we built things up to his level of some just amazing, funky stuff that we worked on, some rhythmic cleverness, as I call it. It's out of my first book, Puzzles, Rhymes, and Riddles, where I put together some subgroupings against subgroupings, and we went the full distance with it. Uh, bottom line was, is that his playing was ridiculous. 
And uh, he sent me a video of him taking a solo and I sat with a big fat smile on my face and I went, yeah, dude, that is killing. That's awesome. So he just recently came back because he said, man, I just want to come back and touch upon a few things and just, you know, retool. Retooling is always good because your recollection of certain things of those basics may not be as clear as what you think. Because sometimes, you know, you work on a few starting points. I build, you know, get building blocks going and you walk away from that. And then we're into other territory. I do eventually want to come back to those things and go, hey, remember this. Think about this because this is a good, helpful aid to reminding you where's the turning point of your wrist or where's the balance point when you're in a palm down position and how does that stick comfortably sit comfortably seated over the full back three fingers and not just in the front part of the hand and yeah. pinching in the front part of the hand you pinch in the front part of the hand you close down access to the back part of the hand you want the entire hand and in many cases i can demonstrate that the back part of the hand is where it's at think of that as like you know, the rear wheel drive that's pushing everything along and your thumb and index finger is the steering wheel to house. Well, this is where I'm going to be calling you again to get another lesson because as I've worked on what you've given me and then tried to explore a little bit more in the molar method and using the back fingers, I'm finding that this approach and just the little bit of work that I've done in combination with the uh, the handout that I got from you online, our lesson together, I'm able to relax in parts of my body, then then transcends to other parts of my body that allow you know because it's all connected. So even when the left leg is tense, it's hard for me to play a backbeat with consistency. Oh, well, yeah. why is that? It's the left leg. What, what the hell? Because it's all connected, and so I'm feeling. I had some really nice gigs this week that was very encouraging to think, gosh, I've just scratched the surface. I've only had one lesson. It's time for me to dig in and get some questions answered. Very excited about uh, these experiences. Now, I've had some bad situations too. And going back to what you were saying about your student, I tend to be that guy that overanalyzes a lot. I have one bad gig and people are like, look, if you have a bad gig or a bad song, it doesn't define everything moving forward. No. It just might be that thing. And you're, you're, you're shooting for 10, right? So it's just, it, there's just so much to it. And, you know, it's like, how do you not overanalyze, but how do you analyze enough that it gets the job done? <laughs> yeah. That's the balance of it all, you know, to be able to be self-reflecting, yeah, bringing a, a, a view and an honesty about where you're at, knowing what you want to actualize or what you want to work on and not bringing an overheadiness, uh, you know, uh, brain to the gig, not easy because even in my, you know, like I say, my 42 years of teaching, I have higher level guys. I'm not going to, you know, blow smoke around here and share their names, but they'll have the same headspace where they feel like they're sometimes thinking too much about certain things. The, the, the detail inside your head though, you got to think about the level of your low to high is so much more exaggerated and magnified because it's you. You see every nuance. The other people that are viewing you don't see that large thing that you're seeing because they might think it doesn't affect them. Like I remember, you know, I'm sure you've had this experience. I've gone in and done sessions and I've listened to something back and I've gone, <clears throat> don't really care for that 
And then the engineer or the artist or the other musicians are listening. What? No, it's fine, man. That's great. You know, yeah. like, okay. So I have to honor their acceptance of it too. I, I don't want to get heady and start, you know, disrupting things. You know, I had a funny um, hang uh, several, many years ago. I did these two back-to-back uh, year, like one in 96 and 97 or 97, 98 with Frank and Bali. And Frank was telling me a story that he was working with a chick mm-hmm. and he had played something, a solo, and um, they were listening back. And he said, stop to the engineer, I believe, if I'm recalling the story right. He goes, he goes let, me, let me fix that. I, I don't like what I played. And Chick looked over at him and said, then why did you play it? <laughs> now think about that. That's a level, you know, of Chick Corea that we would all aspire to be into to, you know, give our best, speak as eloquently as we can and, you know, materialize that in such a way where we're like, yeah, that's me, you know, and, and, and be accepting and owning it, but also having a, a level where you go, geez, I wish I could do that. You know, it's, it's so do? amazing. It's at this whole head head thing. I mean, I, I, yeah, I was doing something where I, I thought, gosh, this doesn't feel right. And I stopped. I'm like, let's just stop the take. And it was Dan Baird who was producing from Georgia Satellites. And he's like, why did you stop? That was it. That was the one I was feeling that he was feeling that. And I, right. I blew the take, you know, by stopping, by questioning myself. And it's like, don't question how you're feeling right then and there. But anyways, that's another thing. Well, when I, when I called you um, about, about our interview and said, I, I, I also want to take a lesson and I explained a little bit about what I was up to. And I said, and also Bruce, I'm going to be 52 in a couple of days. And you're like, man, I've got a lot of students your age around your age that are coming to see me. So that's. And older. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. So I'm curious to know. Um, there are so many students my age that are coming to you. And is there a common issue or concern that some of these uh, older players, these long haulers. If I had to just put it into one soundbite, it would be they feel like they've bumped into a wall and they're limited. Okay. Uh, some guys do experience some physical issues. Um, you know, that, like I, I always say, I'm not a doctor. But if you follow most of my lead, I'm sure I can bring a thing to the other side of the bridge that you're looking for. Yeah. You know, to get you over the river, so to speak. And that's, um, you know, I don't want to, like, make false promises. But there's there's components like, you know, everybody's looking for, like, the quick fix. I want the 10-minute warm-up, and that's going to carry me for the rest of my life. That's not uh, on planet Earth. I'm sorry. Planet Earth, if you want to make changes... There's a dedication, and it's not only the physical structure that you have to retool up, but it's the um, the brain wiring that's already existing for many, many years. When you pick up sticks and you go, Matt, drums, music, your hand just conforms to that stuff. Yeah. And so in order to put a, a different um, flow to that, there's small little tasks that need to be done on a regular basis and all of a sudden, you know, when, when you add those physical tasks to a calisthenic, so I'm being vague to maybe some people who are listening, but I would say like, I have little stretches and little things that I do inside the hand and they're not just BS stuff. It's stuff that I've worked with for many years and stuff okay. that I use. And that, you know, that was somewhat of passed on a template to me from Freddie. 
it's all changed because, I mean, just from the passing of Freddie to me, because I'm not Freddie mm-hmm. and I'm not going to profess to be Freddie. And I have thousands of gigs and, you know, hundreds of sessions and hundreds and maybe thousands of students now, especially because of my reach through Drumio when I did my drum technique course. I actually was in touch with, you know, I think the first time around, like a couple thousand people. Wow. You know? That's amazing. So anyway, the point is, is that you're looking at, you want to make changes. You need to go in and be earnest about it. That, like I said, there's no quick fix. And so to rewire your brain and rewire how your hands are being reflexively driven by holding a stick needs to be a consistent uh, conversation within, within you and through my guidance. My guidance will bring the essence of what it is. Everything I do is interconnected. There's nothing that I do that's like some vague abstract thing. It may appear that at first, but it comes together nicely. It may look like, geez, wow, okay, I got to do that. I remember one guy who came in and, and I gave him like my first four exercises that I do. And he goes, well, I wasn't expecting that. And I said, well, just hang and you'll see. And it's, there's a lot of redundancy in what we do, a lot of repetitive stuff. And then that's also in our motion and our movements, but you can do that in a flow where you can get loose and relax. And one of the components I bring also to my teaching is my experience of being a, a yoga student for many years, stud- yes. doing yoga for about 20 years. And that identity of breath and stretch and mindfulness is what it's about. It's not necessarily like, you know, a lot of people think about yoga that it's like, oh, you're just you're stretching or whatever. Or I don't know, whatever, you know, and it's not. It's about being super mindful in your posture, too, and holding a breath and being able to kind of have an equanimity where you're standing outside your body and seeing the posture and seeing where you might be either harboring tension or you're out of alignment or whatever the case may be. It's the same thing in drumming. You know, the element of that um, mind-body connection is super important. I think sometimes people are afraid to talk about some of the stuff where we label it, it, Zach and I, uh, you know, jokingly label it woo-woo kind of stuff, you know, but but we really embrace it. I think he and I, I think what, what, why we work so well together as partners in this podcast is we see drumming as a, an expression of ourselves in art and music. And we don't see it as a contact sport that I'm afraid sometimes it, uh, it can be taken to. Yes. Uh, It is a very physical instrument. It's a very, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, just kind of like masculine kind of thing. And it's like, it's more than that. It can be that at times. It can be visceral. It can be strong. It can be all these things. But there's something else to it that we can tap into. And when we tap into that, because I play music that requires me to play loud and fast uh some of the some of the time but i also get to play soft and dynamic and inside and that is the stuff the full range of it is what i want to access my heroes are the ones that access those things and that's what comes across so that's what excites me about the idea of uh paying attention to breath paying attention to relaxation what's going on um Zach did an interview with uh, Cindy Blackman Santana, and she gets into that, talks about spiritual things mm-hmm. like that. And it, that just excites me. And I feel like there sh- you shouldn't be afraid to, you know, tap into those those ideas if it gets you where you want to go. Yeah, I also think the fear factors is 
<clears throat> the fact that is you're confronted with, oh my God, I got to do this. You know, I got to start over or I got to revisit these things that, uh, yeah. that, you know, you're thinking like, I don't want to do that. But honestly, I see the instrument as, you know, uh, like a, a constant re-engaging with, you know, where you look at it from the starting point from time to time. Jojo Mayer, in one of my first conversations with him, had put this theory forward. He goes, you know, you're working on stuff and, and, and you want to get to the 20th rung of the ladder. And he goes, a lot of times you got to go all 19 down back to one to bring it back up to number 20 to grab forward. Because there might be something in those more fundamental things that you take for granted or didn't spend the time or don't have as much a relationship with or whatever the case may be. And you bump into the wall. And like I said, so a lot of my guys in their 50s and 60s, they've all had magnificent progress. I can't, you know, I mean, the ones that say with me, I have a, a small percentage of guys who are looking at me and maybe expecting the quick change in 14 seconds. But honestly, it doesn't work like that. I can't think of anything I've ever done in my life, whether it was trying to build up a habit of um, uh, of yoga or changing my diet or having a certain routine with exercise, there's always some, what do you want to say, some hassle inside with you where you fight yourself. You mm -hmm. stubbornly go, no, I don't want to do that. And it's just, it's just discipline. And it, you can in, bring that into your life in a way where you got a balance of it. You don't have to practice seven hours a day. I'm not that kind of a guy. I never was. I, the, I think, you know, for one period of time, when I moved back to LA in 97, I would say that's, I got really serious about practicing, but I was practicing like that before. Cause I was involved in that school in Austria. I was doing a lot of gigs. I just had this like in my thirties, like this, I'm going to get all that shit out. And I would listen to my, um, performances. Like I found some old MP3s from a, it's from a, a mix on the board. My brother and I did a bunch of dates with the group Spira Gyra in Germany. It was about 1995. Yeah. And I remember listening to that and I was listening to my playing and I was like, oh, wow, I was already doing that back then, you know? You know like, so <laughs> things that were like in my head and in the space of, of where they become things that I just naturally put forward. But I was in that space of like, you know, practicing maybe three to four hours at that point in time. Yeah. But the maintenance thing, the, 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 the fun thing about teaching and, and um, teaching is not for the lighthearted. It is something that I'm very passionate and serious about. In fact, I just, you know, the, I've released a new book that's just out now. Yep. And we can talk about that in a second. But my embracing of teaching went well before I was a drummer. My headspace was always in this technic uh, kind of inclined mindset of when I was watching baseball, I was imitating every batter and watching how they batted and what they were doing with the swing or the pitchers and how they delivered the pitch. When I became a skier, I skied for a good 15 years. And in those 15 years, I was obsessed with, you know, and I had good instruction my first two years. I learned to uh, ski in Austria the first two years. But when my dad had this, um, condominium up in mammoth where we could go like multiple times in the year and i had a friend my best friend he was the same level of skier as me there were a lot of skiers back in the mid 70s 
we were both obsessed and we'd push each other and drive each other and compete and give each other tips. Watch your thing. How'd I look? Oh, you look pretty good. You know, all that kind of stuff. And then tennis. I was a, you know, a fanatic right. about tennis for a number of years. Uh, so those things, and I never had instruction with tennis, but I would watch, I'd sit and watch Jimmy Connors and I'd watch McEnroe and, or whatever the guys were at that period of time. And I get out on the courts and I played with some guys that were pretty good, you know, and, um, just be so into the mechanics. So what is drumming? It's a very mechanical instrument, mind you. <laughs> I mean, there's not, not a lot to get away from because if you don't have good hand set up, you're not going to get a lot of mileage of, out, out of what you want. So when I met Gruber, it was exactly where I needed to be. It was, uh, I mean, you know, I probably stayed too long, but you know, you reflect and you look back, there was a relationship that I had cultivated with Freddie for about 23 years before I had to get out of there the last 10 years of his life or so I had to, you know, it was not healthy for me anymore. Uh, I looked after him in ways that most people can't even fathom, you know, but um, the teaching thing, it's not for the lighthearted. It's something that I'm very passionate about. And those concepts run deep and I've really worked hard at building blocks of different levels of things. And, um, you know, I still cast myself back to the student head and the mu aspiring musician of having the vast landscape of being able to do a lot of different things. Okay, speed metal, maybe that's not my cup of tea. But, you know, that's another skill set. But in the larger uh, frame of things, there's a lot of nuance in there. The blues, the singer-songwriter, the straight-up rock and roll, um, the smooth jazz or the straight-ahead jazz or the artistic jazz. You know, in some cases with my career with my brother, we, we worked together for 35 years and put out 10 CDs, starting with MCA as our first label and then a few labels after. You know, that was... Um, not always out, out, but some of our inspirations were, you know, Keith Jarrett and the European Quartet, Pat Metheny, uh, Weather Report, what yeah. else? Uh, Eberhard Weber, great German bass player who had a band called Colors, <clears throat> Jan Garbrecht, who was an extension of the Keith Jarrett European Quartet. So, you know, my listening got wide and I wanted to be able to do it all. And so that, again, going back to technique, you got to have some good technique. If you're going to play an up-tempo jazz ride, simple pattern, man, oh, if your stick's not flowing inside your hand, it, you know, you can muscle it out. I see guys do that at the end of the day. I'd love to have a conversation and ask him, how's your forearm feel after that, man? You know, Hey, Doesn't you know, and I'll, I'll say, you know, playing, living in Nashville and doing country gigs, when somebody's calling an old country shuffle, I've got to access that stuff that I studied with Bob Reithop in playing bebop. Yeah. Make that flow to make that feel good, to be able to keep a consistent shuffle. So it's, it's amazing how useful those jazz techniques have uh, carried me, even though I don't play jazz gigs. Well, anymore. think about the, the roots of the instrument. It comes from that, <laughs> right. right? I mean, that's the roots of the instrument. It yeah. all goes back to, you know, Chick Webb and Joe Jones and Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and Big Sid and Dave Toff and all those kind of guys. So there were some exercises that uh, we talked about in our lesson. Uh, we were addressing the French grip. And uh, there was something about, you know, dropping the stick and getting used to this feeling. And it's like, you know, uh, you know, do this, you know, for about, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes or this many rounds and then stop mm -hmm. and then readdress it another time. Then there was another exercise 
uh, that was less physical. And 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 you said uh, you could do this as many times as you want until you're comfortable, whatever. So I found that interesting because I tend to be the guy that warms up too much or over, you know, or just and, and I'm like, am I doing too much? Am I physically doing too much here with this? Because when I go to the gym, I know if I overdo this, it's it's going to actually hurt me, not help me. So where in some of these approaches are you finding, okay, this is too much. This is enough. Like, how do you address that? And is it possible to actually practice too much or spend too much time on the practice pad? Um, I'm of the belief that, you know, you don't want to overdo it. I mean, I've heard, you know, like I've had, this is years ago, but I had a number of students out of this one high school. That's just a little bit up the, the 101. It's in Agoura Hills. And they would have clinicians come in. And I will not mention the guy's name. But he came in and said, if you, if you don't practice eight hours a day, you're never going to make it. And I go, well, what about all the guys that didn't practice eight hours a day that are working? You know, I mean, that's, that's right. not a realistic, it's not a realistic goal inside the human construction to do that. And I say, like, practice eight hours doing what? You want to have, like, some plans. But so back to my thing. As you're playing and practicing, um, you want to build up to understanding and noticing how those little shifts are changing. So in my early stages, I don't want to squeeze and add too much pressure, like the pressure point that you're working on Yeah, might be overdone at first because you don't, as I'll do my line, what's the difference if you don't know the difference? That's what you're working on is time to discover how much pressure do I really need to pull in to get that to squeeze and get the hand to sit so that it's like all components are working and, and the stick sits in there nicely and not having to be overdriven in one spot. But you have to take it apart, disassemble and work on certain elements. The thing that you're talking about that I said do a million times is that's just th- tossing the stick up in the air and, and yeah. letting it drop. That's what I call, I mean, I would say conceptually, these ideas would be like, it's counterintuitive for drummers to let go. We want to learn to let go a little bit and move with the weight of the stick so you can go, uh-huh, okay. So if I'm just hammering it, yeah. that doesn't allow for me to recognize uh, like a charted out orbit, so to speak, that can really enhance how time feels. That you know, charted that, out that, orbit, it, that refers to the choreo. Choreographing. Yeah, choreographing. Yeah, you know, so when you're playing the ride cymbal pattern, you know, there's there are things that I would do that in the initial stages would be not necessarily going to translate literally to the gig, but the loosening factor will. There are things I could talk about musically. I've got this one guy who's playing in a big band and he does some other kind of a cool jazz combo gig that's not a you know like a in your face thing, but a, like with a vocalist and and um, as far as I know. Um, and he was telling me with the big band, he, you know, we, I did a lot of big band playing back in college and then post-college. And there's a certain approach that you want to have time-wise so that those horns don't pull you back and get you lagging in terms of the feel. You want to sit, but sit firm. So maybe you don't let the stick swing as freely because if it's swinging too much, those suckers will take advantage of that space and launch you back a bar or two. Oh, yeah. So, so, you know, I say to be loose is absolutely imperative. 
but not loose to the point of when you're striking a symbol, it sounds like a spaghetti noodle, uh, sp- yeah, spaghetti noodle al dente. There's some snap, crackle, and pop to it so that your impact has some density, but yeah. you're not overplaying it. But back to your, you know, your thought, you know, as you're going through the process, those few things that you did are going to build into the next level of things that we're going to do. And then there's another level. And before we know it, we have comprised enough things to go through what I call my two paradiddle pages. And those are definitely all about the flow and the dance and movement of what's going on. And as I would say again, you're not there to pass out on the test. You're there to commit yourself to walking through it. And each time we re-engage to have a conversation about it. And I might notice a couple things and go like, yeah, Matt, you're there, but you know, you're doing this, you're letting your elbow drop or, you know, your, your left wrist wants to engage, but in French grip, it's not to engage. It's more being driven from a forearm rotation. That's the old French tympanist grip approach. So those kinds of things. And, and you may not see all those. I have a lot of directives. My observation skills have been upped to the level. A lot of guys go, I don't know about zoom, man. I don't know. I'll go, I'll tell you what, man. My Zoom chops are as good as my in-person chops, you know? It's like they are honed in to a level of – you know, and I think back years and years ago when I was teaching live, and I knew what I wanted to say, and I could observe a few things, but it was lack of experience or, you know, not quite where you get to. I think in anything you do, you better get good after a while. Otherwise, why are you doing it? You know, I it's feel like, great having the zoom call with you. I mean, I've got a fancy camera a friend of mine. Yeah. I mean, you don't need much. A lot of people. Yeah. I get a question all the time. Like, what do I need? Well, you need at least a laptop. Cause if you're looking at me on a phone screen, that's not really conducive to getting more detail uh, and clarity. So, I mean, a, a laptop minimally is good. You can do an iPad. I have guys who use iPads, um, you know, a little bigger, But, you know, I've got an iMac, so I've got, you know, a 22-inch screen, and I have everybody on the speaker view, so I see them large. Not that I have to. Sometimes I'll bring myself forward in gallery view just to narrate what I'm doing as well, because when I see it, I want to make sure, oh, yeah, yeah, see that? I'm moving like this. It's so much more commonplace, I mean, just to have access to this stuff. I mean, and we we think about all the stuff we invest in for remote tracking and and all these other things and just common communication or working from home. It's like, we have these tools. We can oh, put, yeah. put it. One of the things we talked about when we were starting our lesson and just kind of catching up and saying hello is uh, we talked about this concept of drummers see teaching uh, some drummers see teaching as, as some of this uh, as a fallback thing, like, Oh, I, I don't have as many gigs. So I think I'm just going to take on some students and just the yeah. disservice that this does to the student, to uh, just the, the moving the needle forward in, in education. And I was just, you know, curious to ask you about advice for those that want to teach and see it with a, a certain amount of intention. Yeah. And in, in, in a vehicle in a, 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 to uh, work on your career, just really fine tuning it in a beautiful way. You know, in terms of like the teaching thing, I, I, I can't say that, you know, that the, the guy who hasn't taught before can't bring some experiences forward to a guy, but that's going to be maybe a limited interaction. My interaction is a larger frame. I would say in general, I'm looking at 
my student lengths are averaging at about two and a half years or so, you know, two, maybe three years. I'd have to look and do all the numbers, but I can just tell you from doing it day in and day out, uh, what, what goes on. And, um, that's a responsibility that I carry very, uh, strongly in that I have some messaging and I have places to bring you and share with you. And if you don't come from a place of a concept and you have amassed like concepts from different method books, I don't, I use some method books just to demonstrate the overall concepts. And when I've talked to a few guys who have been students of some of those method books, let's say, for example, Gary Chafee, mm-hmm. by Gary Chafee's own admission. He said, if I had to do those books over again, they'd be that thick, meaning super thin, like maybe too much stuff was in there. Yeah. Um, I heard that from Ralph Humphrey about his book, Even in the Odds. And I just want to give a nod to Ralph because he's in hospice care, hospice care as we speak. Okay. God bless you, Ralph. I mean, I don't know him well, but I did have some interactions with him. And his book was something I went through with Freddie Gruber and then later on my own. And it actually uh, was inspirational in my first book, Puzzles, Rhymes, and Riddles. But um, what I would say is that, you know, concept is rather important. Understanding the value and the uh, the the deeper nature of technique. You know, I was not only a student of Freddie Gruber's. I was a student at Cal State Northridge with, with Karen Urban. So that's where I got the insights for some of the Tempest script stuff that I do. And then, of course, it it molded into extracting things in the, the way I built up things in German with Freddie or traditional grip <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> went to drum set land, not timpani uh, with um, Jimmy Chapin. I spent a lot of time with Jimmy because when I lived in Europe, Jimmy was there all the time doing these clinics and, and all around the place. So I saw him a lot. In fact, in fact, I had to, I had to be the referee. I, I don't know why I didn't buy a, buy a black and white shirt and have a whistle, but my, my referee skills with Freddie and Jimmy were definitely on call because those guys would get together. And sometimes they could act like old souls hanging out. And sometimes they were combative. They'd grab me individually and pull me aside. Like Jimmy would pull me aside and he'd go like, what's up with Freddie? Well, I won't do the cussing version of it, but he would just, you know, read me like, what's up with Freddie? And then Freddie would pull me aside and he'd go like, Jesus, Bruce, Jimmy's gone nuts. What's up? You know, and I'd go, guys, you know, and um, and sometimes they were very, what do I want to say, peaceful and conversational with one another, you know, so it was an interesting thing. But but for the molar method, just getting insights to like, you know, what, what Jimmy was throwing forward. Freddie did that as well. He, he didn't call it the Moeller method, although Jimmy wishes he did, because I found later on that Freddie was a student of Jimmy uh, when he was a kid. So wow. those are unknown factors. Um, I took I took a couple of lessons from Jim. He would come to Columbus Percussion and schedule it. And it was it, it just was like it was fascinating just kind of knowing all the people that he spoke with. Uh, oh, yeah. He had conversations with everybody. Yeah. So, you know, and. I had pretty in-depth conversations with him because I'd share stuff that I was working formally with and that I had, you know, kind of that built into my chops of, of things with Freddie. And he would always tell me many times, your, your hands look like mine. <laughs> and I said, yeah, maybe a little bit. I don't know. I'd have to look at his hands again, but I remember what he was talking about. He did have a posture of looseness with his molar method. 
Uh, but he sat on the pad for hours and hours a day. And when you were at gotcha. the Frankfurt Music Fair or the NAMM show, he was there. And it was it was so funny to watch him because when he was done, like he'd be sitting. I remember him sitting very vividly at, at uh, the DW booth in Frankfurt. And they were distributed by a different uh, entity back then. And he was talking and blathering on and doing his thing. And he just kind of stopped. Picked up his pad. Got his briefcase. And walked away. And now, bye-bye, I'm going. And then he walked over to Sabian and did the same thing. <laughs> you know, it was like, uh, it was almost like the batteries ran out. And he needed to charge it for a minute and then go over to Sabian. But he was a, he was a gem, you know, because he had... Uh, um, great stories. I have a, a clinic I had done with Freddie. So when I lived in Europe, I did uh, a few clinics with Freddie where I played um, more demonstrating things. Probably very nervous at that time because I didn't have my, I would say it this way, I didn't have my demonstrations together as if I was teaching because I didn't quite then. I was working on it. And Freddie would badger me and go, do that thing. And I go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then in the middle of me doing something, he might even yell at me and go, no, 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 do that, you know. But anyway, Freddie had uh, some kind of, uh, what would you say, performance anxiety perhaps that he didn't play. So he'd bring me. I did one clinic, though, where Jimmy had uh, done the first portion and Freddie the second half. And my brother videotaped most of the Freddie, but we had a, uh, low battery and we had um uh this was an american uh plug yeah. living in germany we didn't have a, like any kind of a transformer to convert it so it would plug in and keep the battery charged but david got my brother got about an hour and 10 minutes i think of freddie i wish i would have had the jimmy store because freddie was talking about you know so Fortunately, there's a man here who saw me play when I was a kid, and maybe later on, if you want to talk to him. And just as Freddie's finishing that, you hear Jimmy jump in. He goes, you want me to tell him now, Freddie? And Freddie, in sort of a defeated way, like, you know, now it's my time. And Jimmy wants to jump in. And Freddie goes like, okay. But Jimmy told the most awesome Freddie story that about his playing and, and the just his analogies and his the way he brought it forward was so colorful. My brother did not capture that. It was a, like a, so I wish I had it. I remember it vividly, but I don't have that on video. But I got a good hour and 10. And I would say that I badgered Gruber all the way to that clinic to don't be a wise guy. Don't do your shtick, man. Talk clear. These guys are from Germany. They don't understand that. They're yeah. not going to get it. It's going to go over their head. Yeah. Don't be a wise guy. And I'll say this. While Freddie was a little scattered to a degree, there were things he sat with for a few minutes and his voice was clear. I can tell you, like, the tone of his voice was clear because Freddie could get very high strung and, and tie, you know, and that wasn't his voice. He was clear. I remember I played it for Don Lombardi and even Don said, wow, that was a pretty clear Freddie, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, there was some sort of reference. I remember you talking to Bart about this and, uh, it was uh, the Germans were like, we're trying to understand. It's like, take the Three Stooges, for example. You have this oh, yeah. guy named Curly, yeah. and he's bald. Yeah. And it's and like, say, what and a great bald. example of yeah. this miscon miscommunication and concepts. Yeah. That was the Bob Newhart joke. He said, they got this guy Curly, but he has no hair. So if I just they call him Curly, you know? It's so <laughs> hilarious, man. But um, uh, yeah. I don't want to break any doctor-patient confidentiality, but I mean, some of the students 
that you've had, um, if you don't mind me mentioning it, it, you've had David Garibaldi come see you, Mark Shulman, Daniel Glass, like you mentioned, and Glenn Sobel, Clayton Cameron, and our friend uh, Tim Tim Carmen. Is there anything you can speak to with one or a couple of these that came to you? I mean, I guess we're curious to know about David Garibaldi. Yeah. And I know he came to you after his accident, after yeah. his car accident and stuff. Well, with Garibaldi, you know, he wanted to learn how to play soul vaccination all over again. So I had to teach him. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's my line. Because everybody goes, what, what would he want? To, what did he want to work with you? He just you wanted, me, man. You he wanted to redefine his hands. He was a Murray Spivak guy. So he had found that there was some certain things that that weren't getting him across the finish line. And uh, what I love about David Garibaldi uh, so much as as if, if any younger people don't know him, you know, he is the quintessential architect of modern funk drumming. There's no doubt about it. He's a, the, the, the most amazing creative dude in that setting before, yeah. you know, I mean, come on, look before and then look to him and look after. And with uh, a band that just rang his bell, you know what I mean? My bass player early on with my brother in the 80s, early 80s, because Rocco, the bass player from Tower of Power, was such an integral part, two of that sound. But he yeah. was an unstudied guy. He had no studies. And um, my bass player friend Matt would say, yeah, well, before there was Jocko, there was Rocco. <laughs> True. All yeah. those 16th note lines. But with Garibaldi, you know, he's he's such an amazing just teacher. Uh, again, like iconic drummer, author, you know, because he writes books, he teaches, but he's also the student still. And he's a that. guy that's super disciplined and still writes down his notes. He's got a new book that came out last year called DG's Notebook. It's just his writings. He's always writing stuff down. I think he has volumes of books. They don't get thrown away. I'm sure he revisits or maybe rethinks an idea. But it's amazing. I mean, just listen to the construction of the bridge section of Soul Vaccination, where they break down to that and just listen to how his drum part exponentially grows every i guess it's every two bars if i'm not mistaken it's stupid creative and it grooves and so anyway with him he wanted to retool he wanted to explore what i had to say about integrating the whole hand uh working on some of those things and he spent uh, a little over two years Fairly regularly, fairly regularly with his busy schedule, because he's a guy that with T.O.P., man, they're on the road like about 150 dates a year. You oh, know? my gosh. I don't know how it's fair now because they're all getting older. David just turned um, 76. So, you know, but he's such a youthful dude. You know, he's always biking. He's doing something like if you talk to him and he's he's got time off. He's not a guy resting on his laurels. Never has been, you know, could think of this guy I played in Tower of Power. What, what, what do I have to say? What more? You know, message was sent, did it. I'm just doing those gigs. That's not his style. He's not that kind of a guy. You know, I had a chance to interview Michael Bland last year, and he told me that, you know, David was Prince's favorite drummer of all time. And uh, I said, well, let's do this. Let's let's get David on the show and you and I will co-host. And he goes, let's do it. Let's do it. So 
I haven't had a chance to get around to that, but we're going to make, we're going to make that happen. And, oh uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he, and he's, he's, he's just, he's got great stories. And again, you know, he's that guy that I think, you know, I'm not too much younger than him, but you know, a good 14 or so years, I just say, um, that's what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I want to be like that. Well, I think, I think, and I was talking to my son about this, who's getting ready to go to music school as a guitar player, a classical guitarist. And I, I said, you know, you're in this great place where you've been studying this and and voice in school. And now you're going to music school and continuing to do this. And uh, I just had a lesson. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about continuing my education in a way. And I feel like there's this moment where we are doing all this educating or we're educating being a student, a consummate student. And then we're like, okay, I'm done. And we, we get out in the world, we start gigging and doing all these other things. We never think about going back and taking lessons until we need to. And uh, we, a past uh, guest who I, I cannot remember said to me, he goes, you realize who's one of the greatest golfers in our age? It's Tiger Woods. And guess what? He has a coach. Tiger Woods has a coach. And yeah. I'm going, why, why am I not doing this? And so, you know, we, 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 we have great examples of the students that you ha have had uh, and and people that we know have gone back to take lessons, whether it's Dave Weckl to retool things, Neil, uh, all these other things that it's like, listen, this is part of keeping ourselves in tune, continuing to grow, continuing to explore, readdress. You, even Jojo Mayer, when you were talking about him, it reminded me how much I see a change in his approach and his playing when I first saw him on a video in the nineties oh, to yeah. the, his latest band. And I'm like, man, he's kind of a different player. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 you know, I, hooked, I hooked him up with Freddie. Um, Cause he was so, you know, um, interested in what Freddie had to say. Um, as I recall, and I'm a pretty good, yeah, I have a good, pretty good recall. His first lesson was a bust chased him all around New York, got nothing. The second one, he absolutely just sat with him and worked on some of the foot exercises. And then in that time, and I can't remember if that was like 99, 98, somewhere around that period, I heard from Jojo just regularly, oh man, it's not working. And I and he was like frustrated because again, he was maybe looking for the quick change. He was also thinking about a literal translation to some of the concepts. And around 2004, I had a chance to go to New York like I said, we used to hang quite a bit. I are not hang, but talk. I would talk to him regularly, but we did some hangs a few times in New York, a couple times in Europe. And um, he was actually very gracious and loaned me his drum set when I played the 55 bar and uh, wow. at that. So, but I hung with him at his studio and I sat with him and I just, you know, progressively went through a bunch of different things about what I think at that time where I was at with the foot development and um, and I think it registered. I mean, he made a comment to me at um, at a clinic he had done some years later at uh, West L.A. Music about that, um, that it, that was helpful and that uh, he it, it changed. It helped him helped him change. So I always I never say I was a teacher of Jojo's. I just say I consulted him. I've had several conversations with him, but yeah. I did sit with him for about two and a half hours and, and break stuff down. Uh, but it was also. Just the fun, just the conversation of talking like that in, in with somebody who's got very high level insights 
and a, a very clear way of articulating concepts and ideas. That's always fascinating. So, you know, you said going back to teaching, yeah. you know, I just wanted to bring this up in my years of, of study, you know, and concept of things that I worked out of. There was that one book that we always came back to, and that's Ted Reed's Syncopation. And this, is great. this is a great segue, Bruce. Yeah. And so, you know, I <laughs> would work out of that ad nauseum and I'd hear through the, you know, the air of some guy who had a concept and Freddie had his versions. And then from teaching for years, I was always looking at how do I get this to be developed? And I'd look around for a method book and I go, oh, well, Ted Reed. OK, there you go. And. Maybe another thing would come up that I'd be interested in and I'd go and want to find maybe a method book. I used to go to the drum pro drum shop and I'd go in the back in their storeroom where they have the library of books and I just feather through books and look. And then I would go, mm, you yeah, know, I could probably get that out of Ted Reed. So anyway, through through that experience, I got a little deeper into the syncopation book from the standpoint of using more of the book and not just that one section that most people would work from, you know, in the, my studies with Freddie, it was, you know, pages 33 through 44 in the old printing and 34 through 45 in the newer printing. And so I uh, went through with Tim uh, Carmen uh, about three years ago. And I said, Tim, I got an idea for a book. You interested in doing it? And I, really liked him from the standpoint of not only is he a marvelous player, but he's a well-educated guy. He was in the Gary Chafee thing. He was like, you know, really close with Gary teaching Gary's grandkids. Uh, he was starting to write books. And I think I was the one who initiated his contact over at Hudson. But I said, Tim, I got this idea. I don't have a program. I don't want a program. I don't have time to learn a notation program. I'm going to handwrite stuff out. Would you mind notating it and organizing and doing the layout for me? He said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, I may run a little hot and cold and be a little bit of a pain in the butt, but we'll get it done. I didn't know it would take almost three years, but it, <laughs> it was, you know, masterfully done from Tim's end. Like he did a great job. But I went through a myriad of different concepts that I utilized from that book and give a few pointed exercises, and then you can take that section or those exercises that would follow in the same light and extract my concept and go a little deeper. You know, I did 35 videos, so there are uh, visual presentations of not everything. I didn't want to have to practice everything, but um, it was like, really, I thought, I have to do this. It's something that I use all the time. So I called it the ultimate guide to syncopation. And then there's a subtitle of concepts for the development of motion, right? Choreographing, melody, and independence. Yeah. So, so I, I did that. And actually, it's now it's been um, for now available through Amazon and, of course, Hudson. But on Amazon, when it when they posted it about five weeks ago or so, it's been sitting in this new release category for sometimes just percussion instruments, but also for music instruction and sometimes even popular music books. I was ahead of the Backstreet Boys and the Beatles. It's sitting in the number one spot for new releases for this while. I don't know exactly what that means, but my wife said, well, it's better than number seven. <laughs> you know, I said, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of you're not first, you're last. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's been fun, but I, I'm 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 so glad that I finally got it out there because it was such a, um, you know, 
a long affair. And when you're doing something like that, you're trying to be so conscientious of your messaging and how you put it together. And, you know, my writings, because I did do some explanations uh, written out, are, you know, I wanted to communicate them in the written form as best possible, like I'm speaking. I learned to do that actually from my Drumio course, because on my first de- drum technique course that we did back in 2018, and it ran live in 2019, I had to respond to people and give them um, video response, you know, uh, like uh, critique, you know, yeah. observa- observing their video and giving them some feedback. And um, I had to be super selective because not everybody was from the States. You had some kid from Denmark or you had a guy in uh, wherever, you know, in uh, Taiwan. So uh, learning to communicate those in a written form, you know, because you can put a stick in your hand and talk. But, you know, it was a a new format. So when I was writing out some of the uh, sections and just wording them, I was really carefully choosing my words to bring forward what I'm doing. But with the 35 videos, and I sent this off to uh, a few people, but one of my students who's been with me for a while, and his comment was the best. He goes, man, he goes, I'm in your studio. There you are. And he goes, it's like a mini lesson each video because I just didn't do a playback of the exercise. I talk about it. I go, well, this is what I'm doing, and I'm trying to do this. Give a little bit of that back story to the exercise because if you don't have at least a little bit of that in your head – it's not going to work as well. And I can't do that whole technical thing, though, uh, because those would be I can't even remember. Uh, imagine how many chapters they would be, you know, of like stuff to do. But at some point, that's my next project. I'm starting that actually in the next couple of weeks to archive. I've already done some test runs of things and I outline wise, I already know exactly what I want to do. And I'll lay down every little avenue I travel in the early stages of development, because that is, I think, something that I really want to put out there, archive it, and be able to stand behind that and go like, yeah, this is how it works, guys. Take this and use some of these thoughts, and you will change what you're doing with your hands. Well, I've ordered my copy. I did did about three days ago. I'm excited. Uh, The video content is accessible the way things, the way we see things uh, has changed so much and it's so much easier. So I'm guessing there are links you go to access those links. Yeah. What, what Hudson does is they usually have that, like with the Gad book and the Garibaldi book, they have like a library with Hal Leonard and all those videos are accessible through that. They have a code on the, you know, the first page or whatever it says. I have a book, this code and a digital version of a book I bought recently and, and, and do that. And it's got the play along with it and, and all the things that it's, uh, it, 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 that was new to me. That was the first time I, I had done that. But again, um, just embracing this concept of, uh, motion, uh, and then the over, and then what you were bringing to the table in teaching people concepts is so different. And I think there's this ongoing conversation I have with uh, multiple generations of drummers these days. Uh, Luckily, uh, we have this uh, podcast as as an opportunity, as a vehicle to get there, to talk about how drumming has changed, how we learn, how we play, how we perform, how we earn a living. Yes. And and the internet now has introduced this thing and um, you get all kinds of opinions about it. But one of the things that I find um, that doesn't register necessarily with me is like, hey, here's this lick. 
hand here, foot there, hand there, da, 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 there you go. And out the door you go, go play this on the gig. And it's like, wait, why? What, what, how? It, 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 where does this work? Why does this work? Why doesn't it work? Give me something that I can use for the real world for what I'm going to be doing, whether it's online videos, whether it's, but I'm playing with other musicians, I'm doing sessions, I'm doing these things. I need a larger concept so that I can play with this singer songwriter that says, okay, here's this song as opposed to here's the play long. Yeah. You know, the, the idea I bring forward to like, even going back to when we started to see videos coming out, like, so back in the nineties, you know, the pioneers of, eighties oh, even, you know, with, uh, with Rob Hudson and, and, uh, Paul, um, what's his name? Paul Siegel with, uh, DCI when they started fantastic to get the insights and see your favorites. But again, you know, we, I think drummers have an interesting kind of programming in their head. We are very communal. We do like to talk. We have drum festivals. I don't, do we have guitar festivals? I guess so. But I mean, we have big drum festivals and we have, <laughs> you know, PAS and we have, you know, yeah. clinics and all this stuff. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of interesting, the exchange of information, but you're right. Like when you go and see somebody, I would say the same thing. You see some guy and he's ripping off some just really cool stuff and it's great eye candy. And it's super interesting to watch a guy juggle, uh, juggle five balls on a unicycle, you know, uh, in a moat with, uh, surrounded by crocodiles. You know, it's very interesting to see that. But at the end of the day, you're right. Does that have a lot of practical, uh, practicality for my gigging of just being able to go boom, you know, and put it in to a, a place where it feels good. It's sitting well with the bass player. It's constructed well with the guitar player. It supports what the vocalist is doing. All those little nuances that aren't necessarily going to be found in juggling five balls on a unicycle in a moat with five crocodiles surrounded you, surrounding you. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that is always interesting and you know as a guy who's an observer and watched a lot of drum festivals and stuff like that i get caught up in oh, wow that's so cool but for me when i try those things there's a couple things that happen one i go well i can do that but it doesn't really sound like me and my going back to what i had stated very early when we started our conversation this imitate assimilate innovate you know, if you just break it down, you're imitating what you hear. You're assimilating the information and then you're getting to a point where you innovate. Okay, are you the innovator that everybody recognizes? No, but in your own soul and your purpose of being a expressionist in, in music, you're trying to find your voice in there. Okay, it might be clouded by 75 other voices that you want to sound like, but you are you and you have to make good with what you are. And so in doing so, you got to find the you in what you do. And by doing another lick from somebody else and trying to put it forward, I felt when I was doing that in the 80s, disingenuous. I could do it in the right time and I could do the the sticking the right way, but it didn't feel right. So I go, well, that's kind of like looking at a guy and you go like, geez, man, I love that guy's shirt and the way he's got the cool sweatshirt and the cool shoes and the thing with the fit chain. And wow, he's dressed so cool. That looks great. I could never wear that. Or if I did, if I saw like a suit and you go like, God, that guy's got the greatest suit. I'm going over there. I'm getting the suit. And they go like, well, we only have his size. And he's like, you know, five foot seven, you know, and 190 pounds. And I'm five foot 11 and 168 pounds. You know, it's like, that's not going to fit me. 
<laughs> so you've got to explore what you can be inspired by when you see somebody else and bring it also to the table of practicality because while the drumming thing and the short reels and the Instagram things are all about like a lot of stuff and it's really cool. That's not really what it's all about. You know, the, the, the conversation, and there's another back side of that that I always say too, to like guys who are out there, I'd say at my age now, I'd be the greatest side man. It's just, I'm not the guy that they're looking for visually because <laughs> the patience factor, yeah. the experience, yeah. The ability to have a lot of things to bring to the table and and bring it forward in a way where they can make the decision and the choice, but you're capable of going to the left or the right if they want whatever they want from you. You know, doing a lot of sessions, you're pushed and pulled. I always say you're a character actor. You know, yeah. they want you to play like, you know, a hood from, you know, a bad part of a neighborhood in L.A., uh, or the next day they want you to play like, like, you know, like a, a surfer dude from Malibu, you know, you got to be able to bring forward the role of that mm-hmm. and do it convincingly so that it sounds right. So that it's, yeah, that's how that goes. Those attributes are not about blah, 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 a lot of, you know, right, left, right, left kick and left, right, left, right kick and double kick and triple kick or whatever. I mean, again, I don't downplay that and say, oh, well, don't be interested in that. Yeah, be interested. But find inside that what you can do. When you watch somebody and they're doing something, they've had their path that led them to those conclusions. you got to go and honor your path and figure out what your conclusions are to solve your expressive nature of what you want to do musically. And in some cases, when you see somebody doing a playback, remember, it's a playback. So how many takes did it take them to get there? And two, they're not interacting with other musicians. I remember a very, very long time ago, man, one of my early gigs, I had been playing gigs a lot, but I had this one gig, it was a casual band, as we say. You know, you play like a wedding or a party or this. And the guitar player was probably about five or six years older than me. When you're 20 and somebody's like five or six years older than you, they're (laughs) older than you, you know? And he had a great deal of more experience. And I had this thing that I had copped from Tony Williams, the, you know, the groups of four triplets with the gap, like a da-da-da and da-da-da and da-da-da and da. So if the tempo's here, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I wanted to play that like every fourth bar. Not very tasteful. And I remember we were playing some jazz, like the, you know, the cocktail hour. And everything I was doing was like that, you know, like as often as I could. And I remember taking a break and this guy walked up to me and he kind of looked at me. He said, hey, man, is everything okay, man? Everything cool? And I kind of had that, what do you mean? You know, like this defensive, like, what do you mean? And he didn't really say anything, but I got the message. Wow. Okay. You know, sometimes you don't have to be like, you know, be confrontational. You can say, I remember a drummer that I know who said sometime, ago he said something to a, a player he goes hey man can you play a little less loud <laughs> that's so great man a little less loud i love that you know because so you go to gigs a lot of guys just have you know that their, their dynamic level is loud and louder and i remember working with some bands and they, they'd be astounded that i had a good dynamic range I did have that thing and I struggle with it where I used to say the same thing that I'd heard from other drummers. Hey man, that's my vibe. 
No. What you're really saying is, I'm not capable of playing with good intensity and good impact at a lower volume. Your intensity does not have to be surrounded by volume. Your intensity, you can have a conversation with somebody and you don't yell at them. You just go, listen, buddy, let me tell you something, you know, and the, the, the intention of your voice will speak volumes. That doesn't have to be loud and screaming at somebody and browbeating them. So I remember being guilty of that. Like when I played, remember when multi-rods were the rage? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was playing some jazz stuff with these guys and I couldn't play the room because I'd get a little too bombastic. And I go, well, Tony Williams played like that. And I, you know, I could hear my older self telling my younger self, like, dude, you're not Tony Williams. Okay. (laughs) You're not Tony. (laughs) You're you. So do you. Yeah. But it did send me on a path to, to learn to play dynamic where the, to the point I had this long jazz gig for about six years where the leader was, a ball buster on dynamics. And I remember the guitar player who was uh, one of the guys you could consider him a wrecking crew guy. He did a lot of sessions in the seventies playing guitar. He sometimes banjo and sometimes pedal steel, but he was a bebop pedal steel player. He didn't like to in country music. He was all about, I did four records with him where he's playing melodies with and soloing on pedal steel and it's burning. Anyway, I'd go to him because he was kind of like, you know how you have an older guy that looks at you and they 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 pat you on the back and they go, yeah, kid, you're doing great. Mm-hmm. He was that guy for me, even that when I was in my early 40s. And um, I'd go, Al, am I playing too loud? And he'd go, no, man, you're fine. And he'd you know, curse the leader out. And he'd go, you know, F that guy. And i go, yeah, but I don't want to piss the guy off either. So it made it like more of um I'll show you kind of an attitude. I'll show you how light and intense I can play. I knew I could do that because I used to do mm-hmm. practice things with Gruber like that. And I knew I could do that. And I wanted to do it consistently and not lose any edge. So here was the payback. At the end of that six-year run, a bass player I hadn't seen in a, quite a few years showed up on the gig and was the new bass player for roughly a year. And he'd known me... At the end, late 90s, we played a bunch of stuff together and kind of hung pretty regularly. And he, after a couple of gigs, he goes, man, how do you do that? I go, what do you mean? He goes, man, you, you, you're playing so light, but it's like really intense. It feels really good. I'm like, wow, thank you. <laughs> you know, like, thanks for noticing. Yeah. And I pointed over to the leader, Lloyd, and I go, you can thank Lloyd, man, because he used to bust my chops all the time about that. And it was like, it was you know, either run away and put your head in the sand and go like, ah, I don't have to deal with that guy. I'll just do what I do or confront yourself and go like, Hey, can I bring this up? Can I challenge myself to get better at that? Mm. So that's, you know, that was my headspace. That, that reminds me of something I, I, I thought about on the gig this week that I wanted to talk to you briefly about as we're, as we're finishing up here. But, uh, I, 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 Left a road gig late last year and and gotten to the point now is exactly my goal is to be able to play with a variety of people in town. And this week was a perfect example. It was it was it ranged from a loud bar gig downtown in ears, all the all the things to a singer songwriter gig where there was one microphone on stage, full on drum set, not acoustic. Then we played a we played a wedding in a ballroom, and the guys are like, "Hey, man, your snare is like killing the whole room. You have to play that really soft." I'm like, "You got it." And we're playing dance music. Right. Then I played an acoustic gig yesterday, 
with just like a floor tom kick drum and brushes and things like that. So, and like two shitty monitors, you know, and I loved every moment of the challenge of playing very dynamically because I feel like I was getting really comfortable playing with in-ears, playing at any dynamic level I wanted to. If they didn't want as the drums to be as loud, they just turned it down at the board. It was not my responsibility to play softer if I needed to. These gigs allow me to do that. So my point is that skill set, as I'm coming back to it, feels like it transfers over to playing loud with control and facility. If I can play soft and dynamically with intensity, I feel like that skill carries over to then if somebody's like, okay, we're going to play this Foo Fighter song and it's loud and everything like that. I can do it with, with speed and grace and stay relaxed because I've learned to stay relaxed with intensity playing soft. Right. That's as it, opposed to playing loud and trying to go the other direction. So I don't know well, if you could speak to that. Yeah. You know, it's again, it's like your delivery system. If you're being mindful of that and you can play with a good flow and stay light, you know, to expand the range of your movement is, uh, of course, kind of coincides with bringing up the volume. I have, for me personally, I have an issue with playing too loud in that I don't want to overplay the drum whereby I shock the shell and don't produce a nice tone. Yeah. So with my drums, I'm super aware, my awareness inside my hand and my, you know, internal tonal quality of what I'm going for. I had a guy who wanted me to play louder. And I tried to explain to him in the most, I want to say, diplomatic way that it wasn't going to help because I'm playing as loud and hard as I can for that snare drum. Now, had I brought maybe a little deeper of a snare drum, I had an acrylite. It was the perfect snare drum because it 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 worked. Is that such a workhorse snare drum? I got to just say, yeah, yeah, sure, I sure. love my acrylite. It's an old 71. It's so versatile. In fact, when I would go into sessions, I'd bring that with a few other snare drums and 90% of the time, someone would go like, what's that first air? That, oh, let's use that. But anyway, I was trying to explain to this guy that if I hit any harder, I'm not getting any more sound out of the drum. I'm just going to hurt myself. And um, because he just didn't get it. So, and I, again, I remember that that was like a crossover where I didn't do that gig anymore. I was actually subbing anyway, but and it was a fun gig. But uh, I was a sub and, um, you know, it was like one of those things where, you know, you've got to come in and not speak too much. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, man. I got you. You know, and if they say play louder, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm playing. I'll play louder. Sure. You're, you know, you just you got to be diplomatic and figure out it's, how to corral the person's yeah, yeah. or like the old session guys. Here's the best story. Tommy Tedesco, the great session player. When my brother went to GIT, Tommy was a teacher there. Tommy was, I think, at that point, you know, kind of probably scaling down on how many sessions he was doing because all the young guys were in there, like Jay Graydon and Lee Rittenauer and Dean Parks. And, you know, Tommy's heyday was kind of on the downslide, like all those guys, like a Hal Blaine or anybody. So he was telling them, 
that uh, I don't know if it was the producer or the conductor or whatever. The guy's like, hey, man, can you give me like a finger picking? I want more like a Spanish guy, like a finger picking thing. And Tommy's like, yeah, 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 no problem. He moves the music stand in front of his hand. He changes the tone on his guitar and he still has a pick in his hand. And the guy goes like, yeah, <laughs> that's great. That is the psychology of those yeah. guys. And what those, I think, you know, the biggest attribute for some of those guys, I can't say all, but like a guy like Hal Blaine and Tommy, those guys made you feel comfortable because they had great senses of humor. They were, you know, easy about it, but they knew how to take care of business and they knew how to corral things because they knew what they needed to do. Look how many hit records they all played on. So they, they were in it day in and day out in the trenches. I think they knew what was necessary for a lot of things. You know, maybe some young whippersnapper producer had some ideas and they're just like, oh, we'll see. But, you know, they played on a lot of records. I'm sure they had good direction and understood. You can hear it when, I mean, just listen to that recording when Brian Wilson's telling Hal what to do. Hal's so responsive and like, yeah, 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 you know, giving him what he wants. Yes. Well, you know? a friend of mine, a singer-songwriter, uses Eddie Bears almost exclusively in the studio. He said, when Eddie's there, he, I, I, he makes me feel like I'm the most important person. This is the most important gig. And he's played on almost hundreds, many hundreds of number one rec, uh, yeah. records. And and he's like, but I feel like I'm the most important person that day. Yeah. Like, okay. Yes, I get it. I get it. I love that. That's I. That's that quality, I think, that those guys have. Now, I don't know, you know, the landscape of sessions is quite drastically different than when I was a younger guy. You know, there was stuff, um, you know, now you've got, you know, being able to send tracks digitally to people and work in your own home studio. That's, whole you know, that's still, that's still a thing. Yeah. yeah, it's still a thing, though, where you probably, you, you know, in order for you to work a lot, you want to be super available to that artist, give them a few different uh, uh, vibes of what you could produce in, inside your drum track for them and maybe some alternative fills and stuff like that. I know that guy in town, I don't know him well, but Randy Cook does a lot of that. If you know who Randy Cook is, Randy's like... Sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't. He's done stuff like... Um, shit, man. I think he's working with D Gavin DeGraw and he's worked with oh. Colby Calais and... Okay you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, he's also done, I think he did Smash Mouth, you know, earlier on. He did enough stuff where he got enough visibility and, and he's a just a jovial guy. Like he's a good, like I met him and I don't really know him. And he's that kind of guy that makes you feel like you've been hanging out for like a number of years together. And that's, that's really right. important, that kind of social skill. That doesn't just work in the music industry. That works in every industry. If you got I, that I, kind I, of personality, man, that's yeah. that's going to make you far more successful and accessible to people. You know? That's what I tell my 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 boys. My older son is going into nuclear engineering. I said, hey, listen, all those things I talk about, you know, social, the social norms, those things that help me in the in the entertainment industry, they work in business as well. Yeah. And doing remote tracking, uh, working with people overseas, non-English speakers, there's a guy I work with regularly who's German and I have to, we have to communicate and, and it's, I love the stuff he writes, the broken English he writes to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. What he wants. It's, it's, well, you, it's you know, going back to that, I, when I was teaching and stuff like that and guys would speak in their kind of backwards English mm -hmm. version because they're doing direct translations, I wouldn't correct them. I wasn't no. there to give them an English lesson. I would try to listen. And because I lived there for so long, I got what they were saying. You know, I had the 
understanding of the translation. I don't speak German very well, and I didn't speak Dutch very well. Like or Flemish is it's just a dialect of of the Dutch language from the Netherlands. Um, but I could understand now Flemish people and Dutch people they all speak English. When I moved there, less Germans be. be there were less English speaking people from Germany, but now more just because we're more homogenized. The internet has changed dramatically everything. It's, it's, so, you know, yeah. and it's just the the way of the, the planet now with information exchange. But when I was doing that, I would just stay with their kind of a broken up weird um, sentence structure just so I was communicating to them and they didn't have to have a, a English language from Professor Becker, you know, <laughs> One last question. Has anything changed with you as far as your teaching approach? Has anything changed since you became a parent? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, you know, things are constantly evolving. Um, I think one factor is, you know, in the teaching industry, the old school way would be to, you know, uh, be a little more dominant and, you know, hey, you know, and maybe shake your finger at people. I never really did that, but I was firmer. I would get sometimes a little ahead of myself with my patience. My patience and my clarity now is so much better. That's mm -hmm. probably from being a parent because you are tested to the nth degree with your kids. There's, there's buttons that you didn't even know existed being pushed from time to time. And uh, that's a lesson, another lesson into itself. But that has definitely filtered into my teaching of being able to be super clear and drawn. And I try to do that with my kids. It's not always accessible, but my wife and I are constantly on a practice together. We are on a mission because I had a student years ago who was a great drummer from Atlanta, good guy, studied with me for a number of years. In fact, when I sent out a little blast about my new book being available, he said, definitely going to get the book, still playing drums still think about you and still working on some, some stuff that we worked on and feeling better than ever. And it's like lovely to hear that. And <clears throat> he said to me when I had my daughter before, I think my son was born or maybe when my son was born, he said, don't get used to anything because before you know, it's going to change. It's going to be another chapter. Like, you know, as the age has changed, chapter, 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 chapter. Yep. So as soon as you don't get complacent, brother, is what he said. And so my wife and I have been constantly... Uh, with resources and conversations about what we're doing and how we're doing those things. Because at my age, you know, too, I'm older guy, I'm 64. So I never had kids. Uh, I know that guys my age, like some of my friends, they look at me like, oh, I would never want to have kids now. It's like, yeah, because you already had them. So <laughs> of course, you, you know, if you didn't have them and you didn't know what that was, you're just dealing with the newness of it and you're just on your toes dancing and, and uh, responding to all that comes your way. So, but yeah, that, that factor of, of um, you know, being in the, in the moment and, and conversing with my wife, that in essence comes into my play of like how I'm looking at what I'm doing teaching wise. Cause I get really contemplative sometimes with my students at cer certain points. And I'm really thinking about, you know what, this would work really well. And I might bring in another thing or I might develop a new, hmm. uh, uh, what do we say? A skirt around to get us to the other side of the wall. Like we're hitting the wall and I go like, gee, the ladder didn't work. 
Um, I couldn't catapult you over there. Let's see if we can dig a tunnel underground. And if that, we don't hit any roots of the tree, we'll get you underground. And if that doesn't work, then we'll find another way to, oh, the wall was only 12 feet wide. We could have walked around it, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever uh, um, needs to be done. So and those are definitely um, certainly out of uh, parenting because you're working on different skill sets for to command your kids and to redirect their energy when they're getting out of control and all that kind of stuff. And you know, that does certainly play. I would say the biggest thing though, is my patience factor and my ability to sit and stay focused. And that's from that, but it's also from doing and doing and doing the more you do, the more intensely you can wrap yourself around that messaging and get inside of it. Yeah. So much to pull from it. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Different. I'm definitely there too, uh, with the, uh, with the older kids, but it's a new chapter, new challenges, you know, course for sure it's been amazing well bruce like i said i am going to be revisiting uh i'm excited to get the book uh it is the ultimate guide to syncopation it's on hudson music amazon you know they could find you it's funny listening to you talk to bart vanderzee and you're like just type in Bruce Becker, you're going to find me. So if you need to... Well, there is a flautist, a guy who plays flute that's Bruce Becker. But Bruce Becker, drummer, and you'll find me. Um, you'll I got find it. We'll have links in the show notes uh, to your website and all that stuff. Um, I'm excited to continue to work on the things that uh, we talked about at, in my lesson and uh, want to uh, revisit uh, another lesson to kind of keep this going. I'm uh, so... Uh, but. For now, thank you for taking some time to speak to us uh, and share all this stuff with us, man. It's been great. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate the time, man. Always fun to sit and talk shop and drums and all that good stuff. What, what, we're, we're the blessed, most blessed people in the world, right? With our little crazy wooden instrument and metal and sticks and stuff like that. And right. get yeah. to engage in a, a path in the brain that most people don't get to yeah. experience. Yeah. Have a great rest of your day. You, right, talk man. to you soon. Bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Bruce Becker. Check out his website and check out the new book, The Ultimate Guide to Syncopation. I'm waiting on my copy right now. I can't wait to get it. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with John Mader. He is an L.A. drummer who works with Carl Verhaeen. He's done a lot of theater work that includes multiple Hamilton productions in L.A., San Francisco, and Puerto Rico. So check that out. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.